Welcome, everyone, to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. In this week's episode, we welcome New York Times bestselling author, Dan Chabell. Dan is the managing partner of Workforce Intelligence, which is a research and advisory firm helping HR adapt to trends, drive performance, and prepare for the future. Our focus of today's conversation is how do we create a healthier, more resilient workplace for educators? We dive into how Dan got into kind of the workforce development uh, and market branding kind of world. And then we kind of dive into how how do we, uh, as an educator leader, how do we create a brand for ourselves? How do we create a brand for our classrooms or our schools in our districts? Uh, we also dive into uh, what's happening with people leaving education and what, what are the things that we can do to keep people within education? Uh, as well as um, how do we create environments for our staff that uh, where people want to stay and want to be successful? And then how do we take care of ourselves as leaders to make sure that we're bringing our best selves to people every day? It's an interesting podcast. At the end, we talk a little bit about um, Dan's own podcast, Five Questions with Dan Chabell. I mean, I think each episode is some, somewhere between eight and 10 minutes long. Uh, he's had awesome guests from you know Richard Branson, Jay Shetty, Tony Hawk, Condoleezza Rice, William Shatner, Dwayne Wade, amongst many others. Um, and so we just talk about how he was able to go from uh, someone who was just doing research on his own to a New York Times bestselling author to someone who's having a podcast with really cool guests. Uh, he uh, it was an interesting conversation. We're very thankful we had him on. If, as you're listening, if there's anybody you can share this podcast with, please share it with them. If you have subscribed or a current subscriber, we appreciate your support. And if you're not a subscriber, please hit subscribe button. We appreciate all support we can get. Um, again, I, I enjoyed this conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I do. Thanks for listening. Dan, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate you making time to talk to us. Happy to be here. Yeah. So, you know, the first question uh, we ask everybody who are you? And what do you love about what you do? I'm Dan Chabell, Managing Partner of Workplace Intelligence. And the thing that I love the most is it's over the past 15 plus years focused on personal branding, you know, it's especially executive branding, and corporate branding. I've always had a passion for branding. Even when I was in college, I saw, you know, some of the work my uncle did around branding at Gillette. And I'm like, oh, branding is like really interesting because as I've noticed over 15 years, is like if you build a brand, then you can leverage that to create, you know, a company and and to really drive products and services and solutions and network with people. So I always thought that branding was really the key to building a network, to achieving all of your goals. And it wasn't just something that you you do to do, right? I think that yeah. brands have to have meaning and have to stand for something. And so kind of my mission and, and what I'm most passionate about is I was always like, I want to be a champion for the worker, but I also want to be an advisor to companies with the goal of helping improving workplace conditions. So therefore, by doing that, you help people succeed. Because if you're a champion for workers, but their work conditions are poor, and it's very hard for them to get promoted and be fulfilled, then that doesn't really work. So I think I always looked at it as having both sides of the equation and really focusing on helping both being an advisor and a champion. And that's why you see a lot of my research studies. Now it's it's been uh, 65 research studies in 10 years. And we typically interview, you know, either the C-suite or HR leaders, employers, and also employees or job seekers, hourly slash salaried employees, because we want the full picture. And, and by painting that picture, able to tell a story 
that, uh, that shows what's going on in the workplace and what needs to be done to improve it. Have you always had a passion for research or is that something that as you were following this mission to help organizations and people build their brands in a more effective way, did research become the meat of it and that's how you got into it? I think I was always into marketing and branding. And then I recognized that there was a whole field of thought leadership that we're all in, you know, many of your guests are in. And I recognized that research was one element of it, but I didn't really understand that you could build a whole offering and company around research until 2012, when I partnered with a company called identify.com, which was bought several years later, but we analyzed 4 million millennial Facebook profiles. And this was back in the time when people were really interested in generations and, and millennials. And there was the me, me, me generation on the cover of Time Magazine around that time. And it was also the time when I was trying to get a book deal. It was, it was when I was trying to get my book deal for Promote Yourself. And I did the whole campaign for that. And it was my first ever campaign. But I also had some of the media chops and PR chops from you know, my first book and just, you know, just writing for all these different business publications. And so I did that campaign. It went viral. It was on, you know, Today Show, various other uh, outlets. And then that helped me get my second book deal. And then eventually after doing several of those, I built that into a company. And so I had no idea that I would build a research company, but I think I got got pulled into it and saw the potential. And then over time, I've iterated and, and kind of built on it to, to now where, you know, we've interviewed over 3 million people in 26 countries. Well, one of the things that um, I, I like about, we, we got the first question from an awesome uh, guest named Brad Montague, which if you haven't had on your podcast, I su- suggest you go find him because he would be a great person. Uh you know, he, we talk about, you know, who are you and what do you do being very simple kind of empty question versus who are you and what do you love about what you do? So I wasn't expecting you to, to be so passionate about what you say about brand management. And that's something as educators, we don't talk about enough. But when I think about the people who've made the biggest impact on their classrooms, the biggest impact on their schools or their biggest impact on changing their district, they've basically been brand ambassadors. And so I'm, I'm just curious when you think about talking, you know, I don't know how much uh, you've spent in the education world per se, but just think about talking to a principal or a superintendent who's trying to build a brand for their organization. What are those kind of first steps that you encourage folks to go through as they start thinking about the brand that they want to build? Yeah, I just want to refer to one other thing that I missed. So when I truly understand the value of branding, it was when I was looking for my first job when I graduated college. So I, just to, to kind of give you a summary, I had a two-page resume, eight internships, various other things on the resume. But I, I had worked at companies that you've never heard of before and got a lot of experience. And then I yeah. worked at companies you've heard of before and got very little experience, like Reebok. So I was, I was, it was my 15th interview for the company. I was sitting down. And I looked at I looked at the hiring manager's eyes and it looked down the resume and it stopped at Reebok and he got excited about Reebok. Mm. And I think that factored into why I was hired because he was familiar with Reebok and through that association, I call it branding by association, I was kind of more trusted and you know more apt to get hired. And yeah. so I think that that kind of clicked in my head of like, oh wow, brands are important. And then later on, like I started reading about Tom Peters and established like everything around personal branding for for several years and brands create visibility. And 
And basically, if no one's heard of you before, but you're attached to a brand, you're more likely for people to take you seriously. So if you look at all my materials and everything that I've done for 15 years, every almost every sentence of my bio has at least one brand. Everything is constructed with branding in mind because I saw the, the value and importance of branding from that situation. And the yeah. reason why everyone needs to care about branding, whether you're, it's a company brand, personal brand, product brand, is because it is a huge competitive advantage because especially we're you know in a down economy right now in a recession the the companies that are most likely to hold on and and maintain are the ones that have built trust in the form of a brand uh because if you're a job seeker professional uh you're more likely to leverage your brand if you get laid off to another company whereas if someone hasn't built a strong brand they have less kind of leverage and notoriety and less of a network to be able to capitalize on and move to another opportunity and for a company, if you don't have a really strong brand right now, and you don't have a lot of money as well, a lot of capital backing you up, you're more likely to collapse during this economy. So my question around branding then is, as you're, if you're giving advice to, again, in this case, you don't have to know every all the ins and outs of a school district or a school, but what what kind of advice do you give to people who are trying to start understanding what's the power of the brand or how do I build my own brand? What are the things I need to be thinking about so that I can build an effective school where kids want to come to and people aren't leaving? Well, what makes it different? What makes it special? Um, And then what's your unique voice? What can you say that other people can't say? And then finally, experimentation, because no one's got this right. I've been creating thousands of pieces of content for, for so many years, and I'm still just experimenting. I'm like, do I do this? And what traction does that get? And who's responding? And what are the comments like and views? And, you know, maybe I should try another path and maybe I should add this on. And now I got sponsors. And so I, now I got to kind of work them into the, into the content. And so it's, you're always kind of testing and experimenting. Right. And I think that's with everything in life is you got to put yourself out of the, out of your comfort zone to then create something that you don't know if it's going to be good or bad. And then you get a reaction and then you have to be willing to kind of pivot and evolve and, and, and reflect and revise. Yeah. And when you're, one of the things that I I think I've seen leaders struggle with is, you know, especially like everybody's coming out of the break, we're starting a new year. There's a lot of leaders who are ready to go and ready for action. But the the key is they've also got to have, you know, whether it's a superintendent that's got a cabinet or a principal who's got, you know, executive teaching team and leadership team with them, uh, they've got to get others to buy in. And so how do you, you can't just run by yourself. What are some keys to getting those folks to buy in before you even launch, you know, some of your brands to try to fail forward? Biggest thing I learned early in my career was, let's say you have to sit in a room with 20 people who are working on a project together and you're, right. or you're trying to influence, go to each one of those people individually first to get their <laughs> buy-in. So when you're in that meeting where you have those people, everyone's already bought in. So mm-hmm. it, it becomes less of a pitch and more of kind of a, a reiteration and reinforcement of what you're going to do. That yeah. to me, that was because I was leading a Six Sigma Greenbelt team, This whether you know, it's process improvement and the certification right. you get. This was in my early 20s. So I learned this really early. And that's what I did. I sat in and I'm like, we got to do this project. We got to lean out this process. I'm going to meet with all these people individually. So now when we're together, everyone's already on board and we can move forward. So it's actually, even though it's a lot more work, uh, you know, heading into that meeting, 
the meeting will be more efficient and then moving to the next stage will be easier as well. Well, one of the, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm fascinated by your focus on branding is, you know, my, my main part of the job is I travel across the country and work with school districts and schools. And one of the, uh, struggles that almost every district, whether it used to be, you know, urban districts would struggle a certain way that, you know, more suburban, wealthier, affluent districts wouldn't struggle. Now it feels like teachers retention, uh, retaining teachers at a high level is really tough everywhere. And then those districts yeah. that used to have a long list of applicants ready to go and, you know, fill those spots, they're not there anymore. And so we have a massive problem on our hands in terms of finding educators and keeping educators. And so, you know, I'm sure you one, is that what you're seeing in oh my other God. industries? In my, I mean, first off, I think education, the, the talent pipeline in the future is going to be really, really slim. I mean, I, I think that education is going to go through a massive transformation out of force because, you know, over half of teachers have already quit their job or are planning to do because of burnout over the past uh, three years and a lack of pay. Right. And so I think that pay has always been a bit something. And then, you know, based on, you know, who I know personally, they keep pushing back the retirement age for for benefits. So the and and I've talked to a lot of teachers, too. <laughs> who have to pay out of their own money for course credits to continue their education. So the value proposition of being a teacher from uh, a non kind of purpose standpoint is, is diminishing. And so I, I, and I think that based on our survey, we just did a massive survey globally with UKG. Um, and what we found was that, you know, uh, you know, more than a third of people wouldn't recommend their job to their worst enemy or to a child or any any kid they care about. And so mm. I think that that then you're looking at a talent pipeline where people who are teachers and former teachers are not going to recommend that profession to their children. They're going to say, hey, if you want to sign up for this profession, I quit for a reason. You saw how miserable I was when I was coming home every day. Right. You you saw that I didn't make much money. You saw that, you know, uh, you know, I didn't get my retirement benefits or it wasn't as uh, what I thought it was going to be. And so I think that that's going to be a huge problem. And we're all I'm also seeing that in the medical field as well. I think that yeah. is a reason why the U.S. government is spending tens of millions of dollars to help uh, get more people into the nursing profession. You know, there's always been in terms of in terms of uh, shortages of the workforce, nurses has always actually been number one and it's getting worse. And I think that it's, again, to be a nurse or a doctor, the value proposition of, hey, you got to spend like $800,000 and be in school for 12 or 15 years, and then you're in debt for a certain amount of time, and then and then you're in tough medical conditions where you probably won't see your family very often, that value proposition is not great. And so those people are not going to recommend their uh, profession slash job to their children or other people. And so just over time, the talent pipeline is going to diminish for these type of jobs and professions. And that's going to have detrimental impacts to education and to health in the United States. Yeah. So I, so I hear you, there's a big public policy uh, issue that we need to attack with this. But when I think about the people who listen to our podcast, we know this is a struggle. We know it's a fight to build the best schools and school systems that we can and so when we're thinking about building organizations that retain staff, that attract new staff, even in the midst of 
what you laid out there as challenges. What are those recommendations that you you're giving to companies right now that there could be some parallels that I could be thinking about as a school leader or a district leader to help retain and attract new staff? The biggest thing over the past three years that has really come through when talking to just about everyone, executives, you know, individuals who are individual contributors, managers is listening, you know, figure out what they want, figure out what their struggles are and try and resolve as many as you can, the best you can. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is we have a lack of listening in corporate culture and school culture. And I do think that there is, there is not going to be a way around uh, of not paying enough anymore. There's just not. I mean, article after article after article after survey after survey, pay is too low, and then younger generations are not going to put up with it. And I think that there's a reason why when people grow up, they're not like, oh, I want to be a teacher or I want to be a doctor. They're like, I want to be a social media influencer. It's the truth. It's very hard for a lot of people to hear. But until school slash corporate conditions change and pay goes up, and obviously, and I think. 20 to 30 states minimum wage is going up and that's probably still not enough there's going to be a huge huge amount of pushback for mm. those professions in those jobs that are not paid as much and then and then what that what's going to end up happening in my opinion is you're going to have two things one any job that can be automated or removed will be why because it's uh if it's hard to find talent or talent's too expensive companies would rather invest money in getting rid of those jobs Period. I mean, McDonald's greatest dream is to have no employees. Let's put anyone who says otherwise is not being honest. My, it's not uh, being sorry. honest. That's their dream. <laughs> the CEO every night goes to bed and is like, man, I can't wait to have no employees and just have a full staff of robots. It's the reality. And then the other thing I would say, aside from automation, is you're, you're potentially in the future, if we keep going like this, you're going to have one person teaching for an entire school district virtually using technology. I mean, I it just, it's just, and that person will probably get paid a decent wage to make up for, you know, be, to be the only person there. And because of a lack of a pipeline of teachers who can have those, who, who will be willing to accept kind of low to, to moderate pay and, and, you know, lack of benefits and, you know, a place where they could potentially get COVID or any viruses. Um, I do think that that's where we're heading unless something's done. So it, we, it is definitely a dire time. Yep. And I've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about this. Yeah, absolutely. So when you talk about, you know, we can go down, I have a friend who owns about 10 McDonald's and, uh, you know, he, he's been warning me about that, that future for a while of them working towards automation and less towards employment. And he'll say it from a place like he, he's from East St. Louis came from poverty. And so it's a big deal to him to have those jobs for his community, but he was even finding a tough time, uh, filling the spots and finding great workers and not having constant turnover. And so that's why automation is so attractive on his from his lens. And so I guess my question for you is in the education world, we're educating kids for a future world that's going to change dramatically. What are the most important skill sets that we need to be uh, instilling in our children? Uh, soft skills. I mean, that that to me is the most obvious one, right? Especially because over the past three years, a lot of them were isolated, not at school during during COVID. And yep. so that really hurt their soft skills. And now they're heading into, you know, the next grade of school or they're heading into the workforce potentially and they're ill-equipped for that. Um, and I think that I think that that's going to be a huge issue. And soft skills, what I mean typically is communication skills, empathy, 
um, basically the core things that make us human and the things that continue to matter more and more. Whereas a lot of the hard skills, those can change, you know, year over year or every five to 10 years based on the economy and demands and what gets automated and what doesn't. Um, it's the soft skills that will always be really important because that's how we, you know, dealing with difficult people and situations, like that's how we operate in society. And so yeah. when everything else gets automated, that's what's left over. And so therefore, I believe that those will continue to become the most prized skills. And and while my, people might think, oh, you know, they just come naturally, it really doesn't. You really have to push yourself to develop those skills. I, I'm an only child, so it was even harder for on me to develop those skills over time. So it took me many more years, maybe than someone who had a brother or sister. Right. Um, and so I think that yeah, it takes practice. You have to keep putting yourself in situations, networking events, you know, even zooms, like all this. These are all skill sets, you know. That you know, it's not like you go to school and you learn how to manage a remote team. Maybe you are now, right? Maybe that that's part of the curriculum now if you go to to, to college, um, but. Right you know, a lot of these things really connect to soft skills because whether, regardless of who you're communicating or who you're managing or what you're doing, it's really being able to get your message across, influence other people and show empathy, kindness, and understanding that's really going to get you ahead in life. Yeah. I, I think in your book, uh, Back to Human, which is probably written over about four or five years ago, but I still find incredibly relevant today. Uh, you talked about a McKinsey study even back then. I was talking about the future of work being way more collaborative than it's ever mm. been. And I think, I, I and don't let me uh, get the point wrong, but I think you were talking about because AI was going to get rid of so many of certain job functions, the more important functions were going to be us as human. How do we collaborate? And how do we get the best of each other, right? And creativity. I think creativity is going to be a big competitive advantage. You know, that's why every year we do a study with Oracle on AI. It's called AI at Work. And it's, yep. My basically my most successful project. I mean, it's been covered in thousands of media outlets. You know, you know, we've interviewed our last one was, you know, over 10,000 people in many, many countries and, and all that. It's won awards and, and whatnot. But basically what we always look to do is we're like, okay, you know, humans and, and robots slash technology in the workplace, who's doing what? And so that's, it's been an ongoing investigation since 2018. And the conclusion is this, it's like the things that are repetitive that people don't even want to do. A lot of people don't admit that there are certain tasks that they do, and especially administrative tasks every day that they don't want to do, that they would actually want to be automated. Yeah. So there is a demand from the uh, worker slash student side as well. Let's not leave that out. That's really important. But yeah. technology is available 24 seven, you know, especially with I don't know if you've tested um, open AI. And I, I was going to ask you about, was this chat GPT? Is that right? Is that what I said? Exactly. That? So that's available 24 seven. Whereas, you know, a, your, your colleague or your fellow student might be asleep at three in the morning. Right. I mean, that's the kind of idea of what's constantly available, <laughs> what gets you into information. And then eventually that technology will improve and get, the accuracy will get much better, et cetera. So there's definitely a lot behind that. Um, so that's what we're really looking to do is who can do what better, because if humans could do something better than technology, well, humans will probably win that and, and be responsible for that. One of the, one of the things that I, I was assuming was going to keep happening was through the technology all the technological changes we've seen and, you know, the remote teaching and learning, whatever, is that we're going to become more individualistic and relationships are going to matter less. 
I believe that you've talked about several times now that relationships and deeper relationships actually yeah. matter, matter more than they ever have. Tell me about that. Why, why is that? And how is that the case? It's almost like the further apart we are, the more we want those type of relationships. And I do think this stems from who we are as human beings since the dawn of time. Like, yep. you know what I mean? Like, you know, if you were apart from your tribe back in the caveman days, uh, you're more, you were more likely to die, right? I mean, I think that yep. it's really important to to have these type of relationships <laughs> because that that is life. Like if you talk to, you talk to anyone who's like 80, 90 years old, maybe maybe in a nursing home or on their deathbed, a lot of the times they say, you know, they miss their family or they miss their friends. They're not talking about, hey, I, I, I wish when I was 26, I made an extra $50,000. Like they're not saying that, right? I, so I think, I remember it was this uh, Mexican guy. He was like, I think he's one, one of, if not the oldest living people. And uh, I think it was like 118 or something. And he's, and someone asked him, what do you miss the most? And, and he said, actually, which is really interesting, his friends and family, it was also working. So what that tells me, along with research that we've done before and after COVID, so we, we always, my favorite question that I've ever asked is, you know, for a constant pay, so take pay out of the equation, how many days a week, a week would you work? And it was zero to five were the responses. And the most popular was four. So four-day work week, there's a reason why that's kind of blown up and it's become popular in the UK and Japan and Spain and various other, and New Zealand and various other parts of the world. We have a whole, we got a study before that took off uh, in 2018. And then um, only 2% said zero before COVID and, and quote, like after COVID or, you know, yep. a few years after, uh, you know, so 2022 versus 2020. And I think, or no, before 2020. And so I think that that is so powerful because it shows you it's not just about the relationships, but people actually want to work. They just don't want to work these kind of mindless, tedious jobs that where they're not treated well and not compensated well. Yeah, I, I read an article over the break um, about uh, one district who's struggling retaining staff and attracting new staff where they've gone to four day work weeks um, because they can't, they can't staff it. But what it's doing is, is they're having people apply that wouldn't have applied to the district mm -hmm. before. And so it is interesting to see some of these, you know, solutions that have been out in the uh, corporate world for a bit uh, start coming into the education world. Some again, that's experimentation. I think experimentation is good. Getting feedback, uh, testing it out with maybe a department before you, take it more broadly. I mean, especially for larger, you know, institutions, I think that can be really smart. Um, but yeah, you need to experiment, you need to survey, you need to listen, and you need to take action. Because again, this is this is not just about your school or a company. This is about the future of mankind, if you think about it, right? Like the US yeah. has fallen, especially the US has fallen from an academic standpoint. I mean, we're going to keep falling until something's done, right? And yeah. so I, I think it's going to take better, you know, working conditions and higher pay, better benefits and, and just more empathy and, and emphasis on that. You know, it's like if they had the same, if teachers had the same, you know, income as hedge fund managers, we would probably be number one in education. Right. <laughs> People would be making new choices about what they wanted to do with life. Yeah, because if, if you can earn that type of money, fewer people are going to do hedge funds and more people are going to be teachers because not only... Do they get the money, which is kind of attracting to that job, but then they have the purpose behind it. Whereas, you know, 
how much purpose you're going to have with like a hedge fund or something, you know, because it's, it's less purposeful. You're not like educating people and, and transforming and supporting lives. So I think that, I think that that's, you know, and that's a societal issue. We put more value on, you know, one thing over the other, yet the other becomes way, it's way more important. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny you say that. I, I majored in finance and thought I would be going down that hedge fund, private equity world and made the choice to go into teaching. And I remember uh, a gentleman, I won't say what firm he was with, but you'd recognize it, uh, told me I was making a big mistake in my life because I was choosing to teach. And I, I just was so thrown off by that being the value. Like not, hey, good job. I understand. Uh, it was, how could you possibly do this? You're thinking this is crazy that the world is, you know, thinking that way. Um, one of the questions that you just talked about a second ago was uh, that I've I've had a number of folks ask me is how do we create healthier, more resilient workplaces for educators right now in the midst of all of this? I know that you, uh, for those of you who don't, you know, who are listening who don't already follow you on LinkedIn, you've got a few different courses that are, I think are pretty great. So I don't I don't need you to give all the secrets away of this type of course here, but I'm wondering how you coach folks to take care of their well-being and create a workplace that um, you know, just a healthier place to be for folks. Well, from the individual standpoint, which is important, is they need kind of work-life boundaries that they need to set. They need to maybe extra try and exercise more or eat healthier, like there's things that individuals can do. But then from from an institution standpoint, yeah, I think it's understanding what's going wrong, why certain teachers might be getting burned out, frustrations that people have, and then try to tr- address those. And, you know, I think that's really what it comes down to. And I know that's might seem obvious, but it's the sometimes the obvious is what works. Well, it's funny. So, I mean, uh, this shouldn't be funny after the Southwest challenge, uh, travel challenge over the break. But, um, you know, I've talked a number of times on this podcast. I went to college in Dallas, Texas. So, so we studied Southwest Airlines and they're founding yeah. a lot of times. And, you know, Herb Kellerman was somebody that I, you know, you think about the heart in the middle. And it was at a time where we always said that the uh, customer's always right. And he said, forget that. My employees are always right. And I'm going to focus on creating an environment of listening to them building something around them and they'll treat the, the customers better because of it. I agree. My, my wife and I just read an article as we we're trying to figure out what happened to Southwest. And there was a pilot that talked about, you know, for the longest time, our culture has been listening to the frontline employees and we've been giving feedback. So we've made changes the last so many years. It feels like we focus on the accounting uh, and the numbers, not listening to our frontline employees. And so we've made decisions that are counter that we've seen coming, like that we're surprised, like the, the employees were surprised that this meltdown hadn't happened sooner. And so what I hear you saying is like one of the most important things you can do is making sure that you're listening and really listening and taking um, action on the recommendations of your frontline employees. Yeah. Companies that have monopolies <laughs> or, you know, can get away with a lot more. Right. So if, if Southwest was a, a monopoly, like we didn't need to take one of those flights to get to a destination. And there were uh, many other options that there are fewer flights across all airlines now. Uh, they would be in way more trouble after everything that's happened, you know, losing luggages, canceling flights, like, you know, all of everything that you just said, um, you know, they're they're in a fortunate circumstance where they can recover from this and be fine. And people will still probably use them anyways, because part of traveling is a lot of customers can be price sensitive. So if Southwest is a little bit cheaper, they're willing to 
you know, risk having a tough experience to save money, right? There's that trade-off. I think a lot of schools, right, based on number of people going to school, you know, there was a whole thing that I read today about how the absenteeism for students is like astronomically high right now, right? So how do you even get kids to go to school, you know, and and is that going to drive more remote learning? But there was all that's all those studies that came out in 2020 when all the schools switched to remote learning that that was not as effective. Right. So it's again, I think there's going to be massive transformations moving forward. I mean, I just can't see it keep going on like this. Yeah, I agree. Um, so just real quickly before we get to our you know rapid fire at the end to let you go, there's two questions that I am curious about. One is you talk a little bit about in your book Back to Human, but since it's January 2023 and a lot of us are starting you know to create new habits or new disciplines in our lives, uh, you, you talk about advice on how to establish new habits. What kind of advice do you have for folks trying to establish, but also stick to new habits throughout this year so that they're not giving up 30 days from now? Yeah, I think it comes down to smart goals. And one of the most important elements of that is to make something achievable. Like what can you do for five minutes every single day, you know, and then maybe upgrade that to 10 minutes a day. So I think that starting small and something that's within your hands and within your reach is really, really important. Um, and sometimes what happens is people come into the new year and they're like, I want to change the world this year or something, you know, something like really, really big and bold and something that definitely can't happen within a year. And then they get discouraged when they don't do that. So I think that start really small. I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, what I talk about in my books too. It's, you know, what yeah. can you do every single day to move things forward? It's we so hard. One new person a day. Like for me, I... I just probably sent hundreds of emails a week because to me, life is a numbers game, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it takes, you know, a hundred dates to find the person you're going to marry. It's It takes, you know, a hundred, you know, pitches to get one client. Like that's the game, right? Booking podcast guests, you know, reach out to a hundred people, get five on your show. Like that's, that's the whole game to play. And, and you know what, if you have to send a few emails a day or whatever, like that's, if you, this is what you want to do, do it. You know, right. one so, piece of content a day. Right. And so get on a schedule. And then I think it's also like, for me, it's, I read a lot in the morning because then that sets me up for the rest of the day. So I'm able to mention things to you in this podcast because everything that I just read today is fresh in my head, ready to be talked about. Wow. Well, you talked about uh, podcast guests. And for those who, you know, this is probably terrible for my own podcast to just completely hype up your podcast. But for those who have not heard of your podcast, I cannot recommend it more highly. I mean, first off, you to get the guests that you have, I mean, I'll just take a few of them, like Jay Shetty, Richard Branson, Tony Hawk, Condoleezza Rice, William Shatner, Dwayne Wade, like you, know, you all, from every different angle. I mean, there's just so many amazing people. One, like, how did you get these folks, right? So what's something, a lesson learned? I think I know the answer given what you just said. And two, I'm curious, what are some of the most impactful lessons that you've learned through talking to so many amazingly talented, but different people? Well, I am someone across every aspect of life that is willing to reach out and follow up for the rest of someone's career, (laughs) right? So unless someone says, stop bothering me, they'll probably get an email for the rest of their career. Uh, And so that's how I'm able to get sales, get gas, do basically everything. I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to follow forever. Um, 
I mean, that's yeah. really the secret is never giving up. You know, Kevin Smith, uh, I always tell people it took me eight years to book him every, wow. every single year, just reaching out, reaching out, reaching out, reaching out. And he actually was the 50 minute interview. <laughs> so <laughs> who would have awesome. guessed that you would think that person would want to spend the least amount of time, but no, they spent the most. So I, I think it's just the persistence and that's with everything I've ever done. It's, that's probably my, the quality I like the most about myself. So, mm. so that, that's really important. What was the other question? What, I mean, again, you talked to so many oh, well, what's folks, what's so in common. Yeah. yeah. What's the uh, most, no, no. What's the most impactful advice that you've, you've got where you're like, man, I didn't expect that to come today. Well, I think that a lot of them say that they need, basically they all took their life struggles and use that into motivation for their success. Right. And yep. They were willing to, for instance, the actors and actresses were standing in, you know, long audition lines and they finally get rejected and they just keep going and going and going. And I think it connects to my story too. It's just, you got to keep going and going and going. Um, and then relying on a support group of people and, and, you know, not being afraid to kind of pivot and try other things. And that's the same advice I would give for, you know, professors, teachers, you know, presidents, CEOs, whomever it's, I mean, that's it. I mean, that's, that's what you need to do is you got to just keep going. And I think over the past three years, you know, we've surveyed a ton of leaders and everyone says it was the hardest time in their whole professional career, right? Because you can't prepare for the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, it just kind of happens and you react. And so I think that hopefully people can come out of that experience, being able to constantly adapt and to um, not not be afraid to take chances and experiment to see what can work better. Well, I I would strongly recommend to every listener we have to uh, take, you know, I think 12 minutes is the longest one I've seen, but maybe a little bit longer, but at least take the 10 minutes a week. I think every Monday you drop a new podcast, right? Five questions with Dan Chabelle. I, I just think it is worth it. I love your questions for the different types of people, but I also like the idea at the end of your common question of the career advice that you've asked. Cause I do think it's applicable to anybody, even if you're not looking at switching careers, it's just really good advice to get out of there. So I am thankful you have stuck with that because the guests are amazing, but also uh, the questions that you come up with. They're pretty sharp as well. Thank you so much. Yeah. So let's close out with the uh, rapid fire question. So with that, what's a habit or discipline that you use on a regular, you know, daily or weekly yeah. basis that you think makes you the best version of yourself? I think it's just reading industry news every single morning, seven days a week for 15 years. I think that's been extremely helpful because it kind of guides me, you know, focus more on this, avoid this you know, bring this up in a keynote speech, bring this up in a podcast. It just gives, it orchestrates a lot of things for me. And I think that's been incredibly helpful to everything that I've done. Interesting. Uh, I just want to ask a little bit further. I know that you talk about the power of morning routines and maybe end of day routines. Can you share, you know, whatever you feel comfortable sharing uh, other things that fall into those morning and end of day routines that help set you up for success each day? Yeah. I eat the same thing every single day. Yeah. So I, I make enough for one day for two to three days and it's just, and just, it's very constant. And I just don't care what anyone else says about that. You know, you have, there's a lot of people that are like, Oh, well you got to switch things up. And I just don't, to me, I switch things up if I go out to eat for mm. me at home, I'm very disciplined, same thing every single day. And it's always healthy. And that's, that's been a, a huge a huge thing that saved me time, right? I'm all about efficiencies. What can I do to make this more efficient? 
And that's one of the things that I did years ago to make me efficient is to see the same thing every day. I don't have to put all this thought and learn how to cook something new. I just write that out. It's the same thing every single day. It's almost like Steve Jobs wearing the same turtleneck every day. I I was going to ask too. (laughs) Yeah, it's the same type of thing. I didn't get it from that. It just kind of happened naturally, but it's that idea of what can you do that's consistent to then not have to think about that thing anymore. That's awesome. All right. You're around a lot of really influential people. You've had a lot of awesome guests. I'm curious what your answer is for this. What's a book or books that you've read that you think everybody should check out or put it on their their, uh, must-read list? The book I always recommend is Now Discover Your Strengths by Marcus Buckingham because like, I really believe that you just got to invest more in the strengths. And unless the weakness is getting in the way of accomplishing your goals, it's not, it's not that, you know, like the soft skills we talk about, those are going to be important. So you want to work on those. You just got to, you got to keep doubling down on your strengths. Like even me, like I'm practicing what I preach. Like, you know, I'm kind of evolving my company this year to focus on corporate and executive branding. And so it plays into everything I've ever done in my whole career. And I'm, I'm now building off of all of that. And, and that's, I think that's the most important thing is what's your sweet spot? What, tell the story, make, make all those connections so that when you're talking to other people, it makes sense to them and you're passionate about it. That's great. All right. Uh, I prepped you for this one just cause we, uh, just changed it up at the start of the new year. It used to be about what songs are on your playlist, but this little man, <laughs> Luke Taylor Odom wants to know what everybody's walk-up song is right now. So I'm going to stick with it for as long as I can in 2023. So if you had a walk-up song, what would be that motivational song that you would want to put on? I would say I have the tiger. Yeah. <laughs> for a motivational song. I just can't imagine a song that's more motivational than that one. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's not my that's favorite true. song by any means. Like I, right. I, I'm a, I'm a big Phil Collins fan. Oh yeah. But it's not motivational music. <laughs> yeah. It's more easy listening. I do love Phil Collins. We could go down that path as well. Uh, all right. Thank you for answering that last question. Uh, it was a question that we ask everybody kind of like your career advice. What's the best piece of leadership or even change uh, like life change advice that you've come across in the last few months that you just want to share with somebody and thinks everybody needs to, to take heart? Well, uh, my best advice is do as much as you can as early in life as possible. And it's never too late to do something. Dan, I cannot thank you enough for this. I'm sorry it wasn't the eight to 10 minutes. I know that you said you go longer on TV with folks. So you're used to maybe 30 to 50 with Kevin Smith, which I actually going to go watch now because I am curious what your conversation with him was like. Um, But thank you for this time. I appreciate you so much making time for us. And um, I wish you best of luck in the future. One quick question would be for folks to learn more about uh, some of your online courses or, you know, you've done a lot of keynotes as well as other support. What, what's the best way for them to find out more about you? You go to workplaceintelligence.com, danshawbell.com. So it's S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L and all the social networks, of course. So I'm everywhere or I try to be everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcasts on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.